It's a milestone, and we're glad that you're here with us on this podcast episode of Game of Bones. We are going to be in New York in only a few days, so this is an extra joyous occasion. Really looking forward to being in New York in just a a couple of... Well, I'm here, so I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, seeing all of you here in New York in just a couple of days, we uh, have a pretty big event coming up this Friday here in New York City. I'm excited for all of you. Zach, Eric, thank Hannah, you <laughs> to be here in New York City to experience uh, a night of ice and fire at the Hard Rock Cafe in Times Square, and oh uh, this this is a huge event. This is this is pretty big. I mean, we have some very good friends of the show who are going to be joining us, and uh, it's going to be a uh, an action packed four hours. It is of Game of Thrones. The night will fly by as I'm sure most nights do when you're in the midst of an excitable occasion. But the next time you listen to this podcast, beyond this episode, it'll be joined by the likes of Finn mm-hmm. Jones, your Sir Loris Tyrell, Christian Nairn, your Hodor. Hodor. And another friend of ours who I, I don't believe we mentioned across social or otherwise, you know him from when he uh, broke the stage at GeekyCon, uh, kicked open the doors and shouted the language, one of the many languages he created, Mr. David J. Peterson will be joining us up on stage at the Night of Ice and Fire. David J. Peterson, guys. <laughs> All right. And if I knew that, how to say that in Dothraki, I would. Word on the streets that Eric's already packed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, Eric packs uh, in advance, days in advance, uh, when he's excited about something of this magnitude. So we hope that you'll all apply that to your normal lives and join us in New York City if you plan on being at Comic-Con or if you plan on just going to a Night of Ice and Fire because beyond the podcast, Brewery Oma Gang is going to be there. It's going to be a blast. We've got Watchers on the Wall. We've got Fire and Lunch hosting the costume contest. There's, there's going to be prizes. Christian's David J. Peterson DJ. is actually guest judging in the costume contest where oh, I don't want to nice. give away any surprises <laughs> of how that's going to happen. Something there's, there's so many conversations and things that are happening in the back end. A lot of a lot of lines to, to underline here. So I, I'm doing my best to capture the excitement right now as we begin mm-hmm. this podcast because it's the 299th episode. We have two huge chapters today. We're a few days before the event in New York City. Finn Jones, Christian Nairn, David J. Peterson, our podcast, Christian closing out the entire night in Times Square with Rave of Thrones. It's almost literally too much to put inside of one episode introduction, but you're glad that you've stuck with us. You know, earlier I thought you were going to say that uh, David was going to guest DJ. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up happening. It's going to be like Hannah on one side and David on the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're going to just down. be sitting back watching can it all happen. Can you break stages, Hannah? You're going to have to do your best. I, I can think try. David, after Orlando, I mean, I hope we have insurance at the Hard Rock. <laughs> it is insured. And uh, yes, everyone is prepared for what will happen. And we hope that, you, that, that you're prepared for this episode and for the next episode, our 300th. Oh, man. Think about that. It's great how that worked out. I mean, <laughs> it's funny how it worked out. <laughs> yeah. You would think it was by design. <laughs> if you would like to shoot us some questions, try to fill in the void of, of between now and then, if you want to possibly have have a thought in your mind, go across the laps of those who will be guesting on our podcast, mm. uh, shoot us uh, an email or shoot us a word 
via social or if you want it to be mini looked at post it on patreon i know that we announced a lot of stuff last week all the revamping that we've done to patreon.com slash q and uh yeah our bannerman exists we thank you for existing and for supporting us and had another great meeting with our small council this past week we did we did things like uh, what we're doing this friday in new york are possible because of all of you and the support we get over on patreon so uh go on head over there take a look and uh, see if any of the uh Levels suit you. Do they suit you? You may just find one you like. Do the levels suit you? Like a suit of armor. Oh. Day and night, the axes rang. You guys like that transition directly? (laughs) I love it. I love it. Jon Snow, Lord Snow, has the wall for now. (laughs) Maybe not by the end of the chapter. (laughs) Oh. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I didn't see this coming. It was surprising. Much like the last Jon chapter, he awakes from slumber in the midst of continuous battle and i feel that now more so than the last because of course it was what i will consider a part and what continued to be his time during the battle at the wall now that he's been there longer and has gone through what he did even in the last chapter and became the person that he did if you've been following along with us you know that that was an emotional experience for us even so now he and the men are experiencing this repeated stress it's 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 one thing to live within a horrific moment to see your fellows die or to see anyone die for that matter and to experience terrible circumstances, but it's another to to live within it day in and day out and it begins to drain on the psyche. I think that we began to see that with the way they were treating the straw men and how they were considered. Well, it's like if if we if we think of them as one of us, like maybe it'll feel like there's more of us up here. I felt like <laughs> not to jump too far ahead or to say too much here at the top, but that was a pretty good indicator to me from George saying these guys are going through a hard, difficult time right now as Mance Raider continues his assault on the wall with so many men that can cycle a sleeping schedule versus so few men that have to cycle their sleeping schedules. Yeah. I, kinda, I mean, I, sorry, go ahead, Eric. No, no, no. Hell no. <laughs> I was just kind of going to say that I think that it shows John's strength as a leader because they are being battered but they still got their spirits about him and I think it just shows how great he is at the camaraderie that he inspires and I think we don't see it directly necessarily but just the way the men are acting you just see that John's kind of held them on well, his John back through this has that capability and he also has the the competence to make the right decisions we see that in this chapter with with the barrels and the ice um, and you know the little pebbles that by themselves wouldn't have done anything, but they're able to break the offense uh, yet again, and in this sort of unexpected battle, and it's it's completely unexpected for I think for as, as a show viewer coming into this uh, chapter because you know we've gotten in the past the battle of the gate, the top of the wall. Before that, we had the battle from south of the wall. I was not expecting another chapter to be you know, engrossed in battle, but it is. And John's competence, John's ability to, maybe not ability to sleep because he and all the men are having trouble with that at the moment, as you mentioned, but uh, his ability to tackle these insurmountable odds is really held up against the bullcrap that happens to him at the end with the men from Eastwatch and Alistair Thorne and that. It's it's held up so... I, uh, well against each other like a, uh, a mirror image except one of the mirrors is broken <laughs> yeah, i feel like we can't go any farther without just saying that this to those who aren't following along with us is the chapter that 
Janos Slint arrives at the wall. That dirty, rotten bastard mm. made his way up from King's Landing and came just at the worst time. There's nothing worse than Slint and Thorn rolling up together. I know. As a pair. <laughs> it's like the last thing that you want to see. It is definitely a bad combination for John, especially uh, as they uh, have that little inquisition at the at the end of the chapter. Really, the only ally that John has in the room is Maester Aemon. Uh, which uh, is probably a good thing that uh, Maester Eamon was able to survive everything that's been going on. Mm. Yeah, Eric, you uh, alluded to this a little bit, but just the the fact that you're in another John chapter and it opens with Mance still uh, finding a way to try and penetrate the wall and and try and get through the defenses that the Night's Watch have in place. It, it is very different uh, from the show, right? We we got all of this in just uh, an amazing, well-produced episode during that season. Uh, but in the, in the book, you, you sort of feel the slow burn, yeah, right? Of, and, and you really get, uh, from John's perspective, what it's like to have to try and lead uh, in, in these types of situations. And, and he's constantly fighting. You know, first it's the attack from the south. Uh, then it's, of course, the advance uh, where they try and break through the gate. And now here they are yet again uh, using this contraption called a turtle, uh, to try and and basically advance on the wall undercover, get to the gate and and do what they need to do uh, with this um, massive protection. And so, uh, really, uh, you can imagine that if they needed to, they could really just wait out the night. The night's watch. They don't have the men uh, over time, and and who knows what would happen if they had that ability. Which you know, it, it comes back to: is Mance really that organized at the end of the day? Doesn't seem like he is, and if he was, the the outcome I think would be far different. When we received the Raven from Sir Dennis Malister, it said Bone Marsh had chased down wildlings all the way to the Shadow Tower. It seemed, and farther down into the gloom of the gorge at the Bridge of Skulls, he had met the Weeper and three hundred wildlings and won a bloody battle. But the victory had been a costly one. More than a hundred brothers slain, among them Sir Andrew Tarth, Sir. Aladell Winch, the old pomegranate himself, had been carried back to the Shadow Tower, sorely wounded. Maester Mullen was tending him, but it would be some time before he was fit to return to Castle Black. And I mention that because that's not even happening here. You know, you were saying, Micah, that they're coming and they seem unorganized. Unorganized enough to face Dennis Malister's people and to fight at the Bridge of Skulls and to lose, even though their numbers are severely outnumbering what the Night's Watch are able to put together. We were we were warned with John's time that he spent with Mance Raider how many people they had against such such small numbers. And I know that the wall represents a large force against people. And we see that a lot in this chapter. I think more so than the others, just how the humor was scattered throughout when they were dropping the barrels and how safe they felt as the arrows passed by. Over time, they just grew used to the fact that they weren't aiming them correctly. I, I felt like a lot, a lot of, a lot of our comfort was due to the fact that they were less organized than these men of the wall, who again, most of them didn't begin as soldiers, but went through some sort of scattered training. And they're going through. Again, I'll read a part from the book. It says no one spoke. They were all too tired for talk. Few of them ever left the wall these days. It took too long to ride up and down the cage. Castle Black had been abandoned to Maester Amon, Sir Winton Stout, and a few others too old and ill to fight. So basically, 
the men fighting at the top of the wall are just staying there. They're just sleeping there and being being brought food. And and it's it's really amazing getting sort of day in day out the the day in the life writing from George here. And I know we've said it before that George R. R. Martin is a genius. Um, but this this sort of the nuance of having that humor that's interspersed and the ability to get used to arrows flying over your head, you know, nearly hitting you. It's, it's John who's like. Oh, they're coming into the wrong angle. You know, it won't. It, the likelihood that they'll get me is not to actually train yourself to ignore the constant flurry of of arrows, or even be somebody like Pip, who says things like, "Oh, those are our breakfast arrows." You know, because they're getting them morning, noon, and night. Uh, it's amazing to to read characters that are dealing with this such a prolonged siege, and I I really. Don't know how he does it because when you're reading it, you're just like, oh, this is exactly how it would be, right? You, you overall, you have to learn to cope with this kind of thing. And that's what these men are doing, the few that are left. Meanwhile, Mance's army are literally settling in. They're just chopping down trees, making new weapons, uh, crude spears. They're building, like Micah said, this big turtle, which is essentially a siege weapon that looks like a turtle. At first, at first, I thought it was a turtle. Because, like, <laughs> you know, they have big woolly mammoths. Maybe um, they had a big turtle, too. A bi- maybe <laughs> they had a big turtle. But no, it's it's clearly explained what it is. Again, though, to, what Mike has stressed, maximum protection um, for, for these guys. And talking about the, the disorganization, like even uh, the disorganization of the wildlings, even um, Jon Snow, after losing those four barrels and eventually defeating this turtle by, you know, breaking it, uh, is kind of hesitant and worried about the remaining eight that he has. You know, he, he knows the inventory. He knows exactly how many barrels this thing cost them. And it's just that they are so heavily outnumbered that, you know, if Mance were to wait, you know, however long it would take, another couple days, another week, to build another turtle, then, you know, it would be another four barrels, maybe right. unless they, you know, and it's just like you you get a sense well, John knows exactly how much longer he and all of the men could survive. Essentially, it's it's brought directly to a number of weapons that you have left, and the Fletchers aren't fletching. You know, all all of these other things are said during the chapter to let you know that they they really are running out and and in desperate need of of assistance. Mm-hmm. And what's to stop them from building another turtle once Nothing. this turtle is destroyed? Well, Mance's wife's about to have a baby, so they they could be there for a while. <laughs> Good. She's getting comfortable just outside tending the fire. John's looking through the, I guess we could call it a telescope. What is it? What did he say? It's a mirror lens. Spyglass. The spyglass sitting on a three-legged stool that Maester Eamon usually peered with. But now he's looking over the wall at the wildlings approaching. And he can see clearly Mansa's like, large white tent. And he's recalling these people that were close to him. And I thought this was so cool uh, because we haven't had a lot of that in the past few chapters. He's like thought of things. But we literally saw Tormund out there with his sons. Yeah. Just like kind of directing stuff. He saw Varimir's six skins with his shadow cat stalking around the trees. And he saw Dala. Uh, it's just, it really ties us back to what happened when he was spending time with them, but also increasing the humanity on both sides. And it's just at some point you got to ask yourself, when will this stop? And when will they realize that there's a much larger threat coming from the North? I mean, in this chapter, we had a mention directly, and this doesn't happen a lot of a white that John defended Lord Commander Mormont from a white. And that's how he burnt his hand. It's just hard. And it continues to be hard when 
the humanity is stressed because when it's giants and mammoths coming at the wall, it's one thing, but when it's Tormund and when it's Mance and especially having seen beyond it in the show and what we've read in the books, it's just, it's, it's a shame that this is all happening. You're exactly right. I mean, life, life going on, Dala, perfect, perfect example of, of, you know, Mance's wife about to have a kid. It's like in the midst of all this death, there's, there's that and John can see them. And, and that's kind of what to me makes the, the end of the chapter. So, um, uh, so much of a kick in the ass. Yeah, uh, so frustrating because it's John's knowledge of these people that allows him to confidently defeat them. Like his familiarity with who they are and his guesswork, which is more often than not completely correct as to what their tactics are going to be. Mm-hmm. I can kind of, I mean, I sympathize a little bit with Thorn and Slint coming up and almost benching John, I guess, because you sympathize? I sympathize <laughs> a little bit because at the end of the day, he, he did, he didn't betray them, but he was with the wildlings and yeah. there's one guy on the other side of the wall can be worth way more than a hundred, 200 billion wildlings on the other side of the wall. You know, think about how much yeah. damage John could actually do from the inside. And so I, I could almost see them see the reasoning behind locking john up for a little while while they're trying to figure this out just in case you know yeah even if it's in the midst of battle even if it's in the midst of battle and even if he's doing a good job up there i still think i can kind of sympathize a little it's true and and he does get compared to ned and and being a traitor at least by janos in in this chapter so there is that uh possibility that there's traitor's blood uh inside john just like there was inside of ned but I, I'm not as big of a sympathizer only because I believe that uh, actions speak louder than anything else here. And if you look at the what John has done, and I and I know that you know there's a lot of questionable things that he did um, that are outside of what he probably should have done when he was with the Wildlings. But he's back here. He's defended the wall successfully. Uh, he wasn't put in his position by the Lord Commander for no reason as is pointed out by Mr. Eamon, there was clearly something that the Lord Commander saw in him that he wanted to nurture and, and grow. And I don't think somebody who wanted to be with wildlings would would return to Castle Black and defend it the way that he did over the course of these last few chapters. So I'm on I'm on Team Snow here. <laughs> I, I don't like Slint. I don't like Thorn. I was happy that he got picked up by his neck. <laughs> that was, that was John, awesome. John has clearly been lifting those barrels when nobody has. Oh, yeah. Multiple reps. What's up, Jon Snow? <laughs> this was typical Eliza Thorn, just teeth grindingly frustrating. And this is an example how John got into this situation, first off. It made me think of his fate that we've met in the television show. And I was so scared that this was about to happen oh, in this chapter, shit. but I, I had better sense because I know that there was no vote and I knew too much, but to, to new readers, I can only imagine how interesting this must've felt. This is after John has given charge of the wall to either Pip or Gren, let them figure it out. Gren's grown into such a man with stockier shoulders, uh, an impressive beard, which is what it takes to be a man, yeah. uh, I guess at all, uh, or especially this far North. And he's he's stirred. He's woken from his slumber as he was taking a break from destroying the large icy vanilla turtle, and brought to see this man, this John O'Slint, who's now in charge. And like I said, the frustrating part is here. And we've ran into these frustrating bits in the stories where you just can't 
help your main character. You just want to shout at him to say this or do this, <laughs> right? Exactly. Or stop mm-hmm. this other person because if only this were figured out, then he can move forward and everyone would understand this is that situation, except it's with someone that we've grown to hate from his time in King's Landing. He's finally made it here, John O'Slint and Alistair Thorne. Together, like you said, Hannah, just what a diabolical, despicable duo, just buying into each other's bullshit. There, there's really nothing better than uh, how Thorne is uh, described at first as being immaculate, <laughs> immaculately dressed. Like, blood has not touched him, you know? Fatigue has not touched him. Alistair is, is a cut above... Uh, sorry, below the rest. He's not doing battle. He's not up on the battlements. If you were to ask any of these men who is the one reason that the wall still stands, as John is sort of trying to say, but he's so shocked and taken aback that all the best arguments are, you know, have fallen. Um, you know, anyone would say that that John is absolutely in the right here, and I'd like to see. I'd love to see any of them do what John has done and accomplished and without getting their hands dirty, as dirty as, as, as he did or worse, because we know they'd all do a, a bumbling job and not, <laughs> not be anywhere near as successful as John has been. But it's like, because of his deeds, because of the finer detail or not the finer details, because of the general summary of what he's done, killing yeah. Gordon half hand, betting a wildling. It's looked upon as, as, as a negative thing. And, and in fact, it's almost preposterous that we know what the battle is, is like going on up on top of the wall that below there's like this diplomatic or sorry, yeah. there's like procedural, this issue, this, this sort of, he's been given the wall, but now he's being put into a cell. Like what the hell is this? After what he's done. After, yeah, exactly. Remember when they were attacked from the South, how terribly terrifying that was. Are they not aware of like the constant threat? Like they are, but it's just like, now is not the time to, I, I, I don't Slint's know. down here saying, "You will call me my lord. You yeah, will call exactly. me professor." Arguing grammar okay, the whole thing. like <laughs> shut up, dude. Right? It's pretty bad. It's pretty, but I think I think that this whole frustration that we're having while reading this, and again, you're exactly right, Zach. We want to shout out, say this, say this. In the end, it, you know what needs to happen is what needs to happen. But I, I, maybe this frustration is is <laughs> supposed to take the edge off the frustration we're about to feel in the next chapter. Well, that's the thing is it's been frustrating at this chapter and it's like we were frustrated at the chapter before and the chapter before and the chapter before. I'm noticing and, a trend here. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Micah might be able to speak to this having read these. This is kind of the point in the book that I come to in every single one of these books in this series where everybody I care about is in major trouble and I'm just <laughs> super stressed out about it and I just want to not do it anymore. Like, I can't do it anymore. can't deal with this. Like, I'm going to stop reading forever. And then, you know, you read a little bit more and then this whole series is over. But. I agree. There, there's a lot of uh, frustration with, with what happens uh, in these chapters because you feel like just when there's that glimmer of hope, like John finally gets to go to sleep. And, you know, after he's been kept up for so long and when he finally does, he wakes up and we know what happens after that. He has to be interrogated by Thorne and Slint. And even in the next chapter, right? There's that glimmer of hope for Tyrion. <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> and then the mountain somehow yeah. is able to wrestle I over know. and down and Tyrion is going to the Black Cells. So you are left with this sense of frustration, yeah. I'm frustrated now. Damn our, our, the way we've structured these episodes because <laughs> I really want to go on. But I, Should we take a week off? Should we... <laughs> 
go to a rave or something. Over and <laughs> damn it. But I think you'll you'll feel a, a certain sense of redemption with what happens as Tyrion escapes, and mm-hmm. of course, the epilogue of this book is something that never made it into the show. That I think is going to be uh, you'll really like you'll walk away with some chills, but I also feel like. You'll, you'll you'll feel like you know what maybe things aren't that bad after all mm-hmm. <laughs> micah's teaser campaign yep. for a storm of sorts <laughs> well we're nearing the end i mean we're really not that far away at this point i don't know it's starting to feel that way after all i don't know just the way that it's shaken out i felt like could john be faced with more i mean on top of the fact that a battle is taking place and people are dying on both sides again like i said we're we're being dealt this frustrating hand of storytelling and this dramatic tension um i is really a hallmark of a page turner of something that keeps you viewing right. it's strange that something like the red wedding happens and the following season of the television show is, is so popular and in such demand and it continues going up the numbers continue to rise even though in some cases, some pretty shocking and, and publicly hated things happen, but continues to grow, and the tension continues to tighten, and eyeballs continue to come, and I suppose that's what we're being susceptible to here. We're yeah. seeing John go through something he shouldn't have to go through by two cravens, essentially. I think Eliza Thorne has more honor than John O'Slint, but he's he's playing to this man's weaknesses. He's buying into the kind of person that Slint is using the pleasantries. John makes a reply back to Slint after Slint's questioning what he did. Essentially, Slint's questioning John's involvement with the wildlings, and he makes some kind of comment that says, I don't swallow lies that easily. Did you think my skull was stuffed with cabbage? He says, I don't know what your skull is stuffed with, my lord. (laughs) And Thorne shoots back with Lord Snow is and this is after the point he goes he likes to be called Lord Snow and it's like we know he gave him that name uh, you did it yourself you gave him that name it's like uh, Lord Snow is nothing if not arrogant said Sir Alistair he murdered Corrin just as his fellow turncloaks cloaks did Lord Mormont equating him with those people think about that yeah. it would not surprise me to learn that it was all part of the same fell plot Benjamin Stark playing into Slint's hatred for the Starks, may well have a hand in all this as well. For all we know, he is sitting in Mansurator's tent. Even now, you know these Starks, my lord. Man, once they brought Benjen in it, once they brought Uncle Benjen, I'm like, okay, gloves are off. All yeah. right. It's you do personal. not sully the name of <laughs> Benjen Stark. You know, it's, it's pretty crazy. Do but not I, insult Benjen Stark. In front of me. <laughs> dealing with Alistair is like dealing with Snape on any day. It's That's what I was big... thinking the whole time. I was like, yeah. this feels very Snape to me. You've missed the Hannah Weave. This has been like our Snape. I think since you know, we went through the first book, it's just like this guy just does not let up. And we were expecting some kind of long arced redemption. Do you remember, guys, when I was just like, oh, you know, Thorn, and then what happened when the show happened the way it did? Um, during the fourth season, and then this fifth season turned out the way it had, and so my dreams and hopes and heart is crushed. But again, read the canon; it's pretty clear how things should and, and will shake out. It's just you—you you can't get over, or I can't get over in my head with this chapter the stupidity, or or actually the detriment of removing Jon Snow from these these proceedings. Sure, Pip and Gren are great; all of the men are actually are are great um, and are doing a good job. But without Jon's direction. The, the wall is in serious peril more than it is when he's up there. 
like to to actually he he just saved them from this incredible threat that we didn't see coming uh because he was able to to think it out and see it and prep for it uh without him i mean these men are actually taking him actively off of the wall and imprisoning him what does that serve it it does no good there isn't there's no good that it can possibly do what will happen we'll have we to wait and see this wasn't in the show damn it <laughs> <laughs> good Damn it, good. And it's dangerous uh, seeing these guys who are now, I guess, going to be in charge. And the East Watch men that John didn't know is terrifying, right? There's men here that he doesn't know. He knows everybody. Um, has the wall fallen? But these guys, Thorn and uh, Slint, these guys, Thorn and Slint, are laughing at the idea of the Horn of Winter. You know, laughing at John's sort of reasons given for for this, and they they don't believe him. And that's a real shame because we happen to know we've been following it for some time, and we know that that's ex- that this is a world in which those things exist. And John is the good guy here. Did you count their snarks as well? I did not count their snarks. Well, the wildlings have no snarks, <laughs> none, but they do have giants. <laughs> what do you think of them having rattle shirt though? Oh, that was the trump card because yeah. I don't think that they would have needed his confession. But it surely didn't hurt that they had a, a wildling selling John up the river. Well, they're in the middle of battling them, and they take Rattleshirt's word. They're like, yeah, this guy this guy tells the truth. This was the nail in the coffin, though, for John. Not that he had any defense going in with Thorne and Slint, but the fact that they were able to throw down an unarmored, normal-looking Rattleshirt, Lord of Bones, that all men are supposed to quake in front of. John questions himself, like, this is the guy that... We were afraid of that the half-hand knew would eventually kill us because we were captured. This is the guy. He was captured, and he spat this lie, this tale, to, like I said, sell John up the river because he knew John was playing both sides the entire time. And imagine being in his position, having been captured, and still being able to make John die. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, how did I even get in this situation? This is perfect. I'm oh, going okay, to lie. Okay, I guess that's... When you put it that way, I think the, the motive is clear. But I, I, I like how John, even John is able to coax out, or it's not completely hidden or beaten down, Rattleshirt's pride. You know, when, when John is telling his story about Corn Halfhand, and, and Slint says, so now you claim the great Corn Halfhand feared this creature? And he says, all men fear the Lord of Bones. You know, he's just like, he's he's got this identity and this pride and it's it's almost like for half a second that he and john are both against slint or both against this it's just it's so the blurred lines the gray area here is is really interesting so now john will be carried off to presumably a cell to sit in lie in sleep in for the foreseeable future and uh we know that uh our good friend Tyrion is in a much similar predicament and he's thinking of the wall of all places (laughs) he's thinking of molestown of all places and of lord commander mormont who was a clever man he made friends with and he's thinking of castle black and Tyrion, we've been thinking of castle black as well but no matter what your situation is here that we will get into i don't think that when the dawn breaks you'll find yourself hoping for a place at the wall there is a brothel there though so can't be that bad. I have a feeling that Tyrion's done with horse. <laughs> Maybe. How far he's come. I know that he started at the top and now he's in a, a cell, but I was reading a description of the first season, just a little bit of 
nostalgia recently. And uh, I think the largest descriptor of Tyrion Lannister was that he was a dwarf that enjoyed uh, brothels, that enjoyed the visiting of brothels. And I, <laughs> the depth of this person that we've come to know after uh, the very humble meeting in Winterfell to now being put on trial in front of gods and men with his father conducting the trial. We know we went through it before, but here we are, guys. Like This is the defining moment. And if you remember the end of last week's episode, I had no idea that it was the end of his trial and also the falling action from yeah. the subsequent trial by battle that is happening. I mean, I don't even know where we begin in this conversation. I think it, it's interesting that you say he starts you know, the series on, on the top um, because he kind of does, right? He he kind of has his father's leave to to whore and brothel. As long as it's out of the way, you know, he brings dishonor on his family, but he's able to do what he wants. He's free. We see him excel through the challenges and becoming, you know, hand of the king to Joffrey and succeed at Blackwater. But this sort of chapter makes you hope, uh, not just nostalgic, but also hope that maybe he could have done something to not end up here. Um, because this is a ter- terrible situation. And, and knowing just sort of the events of this chapter, as they play out, Tyrion himself is questioning whether things could have gone differently or whether he, he says he wishes that they had gone differently, which of course is understandable. But it's just so much has happened with this character and you're really left wondering, is this how he goes out? Um, because all of the forces have conspired against him at this point. It's it's actually it would be heart wrenching if it weren't for Tyrion's own brand of like humor and the occasional glimpses of hope, as you mentioned, the hope that we have for Oberyn in this chapter, the hope that we have that the gods will be just, and uh, but otherwise Tyrion's dead, and his own father wants it, his sister wants it, clearer than anybody, and nobody's doing anything to save him. It's sad. I mean. I think there was a good chance that going into this final day of the trial that had Shay not testified, Tyrion would have possibly confessed and, and chosen to take the black. We don't really know. close, right? Yeah, especially from the way this chapter opens. We, we, don't, we don't really know what Tyrion's response was to, to Oberyn uh, from, from his last chapter because it's Oberyn who ends the chapter uh, saying that he'll be his champion and... Mm we get a little bit of insight into Tyrion's mind here, but if you were to just open up the book to this chapter and read, you would think that he was considering uh, taking the black with the way he's talking about the wall and, and Molestown, as you mentioned, and, and the Lord Commander, and it, you just get that scene uh, where he goes into the room and there is Shay, and, and at first he thinks, well, of course they would question her because she was one of Sansa's handmaids mm-hmm. uh, but then as she goes into more detail it's so very clear she's been prepared uh, her story is just so detailed and it has such a flow to it and it, you know it's almost like she's checking off the points in her head and this is where you really get a sense for the lack of relationship I think that existed in truth between Shay and Tyrion in the show I think there was uh the the way that it was written it, dramatized it yeah but it seemed like there was actually some feelings between the two of them yeah whereas mm-hmm. i don't know you get that as much from reading it here in the books well, clearly that's not the character that george intended to to write and i think that we've 
been given hints to that. And as the story went on, it's just become terribly clear of the person that Shay is and from the, from the way that they met and from the way that they had their most recent meeting. I think that there was an evolution of their process, applying that to the knowledge that we have of Taisha and Tyrion's past. I mean, I feel like that was clear, but this to even us was a blindside the way that she was pitted against Tyrion Mm -hmm. and the getting to the person that Tyrion cares about the most ended in this way and not in her being killed or being used as a bargaining chip against him, but to actually be used as a weapon in his trial. That was crafty by the Lannisters against him. That was very, very strong, very crafty, and it was such a fatal blow. Speaking of frustration, this was the worst to read, and I knew it was going to (laughs) happen if it happened in the way that it was carried out in the program. But Jesus, I mean, this was complete. Everything was covered. Nothing was safe. There's nothing that Shay saved in detail. She, she, you know. Do you believe now, Eric, that she has no love for him? Do you believe it? Yeah, you do. Because there's, there's nothing that she kept to herself at all. She, she has turned everything on its head. She's lied about how she found or Tyrion found her. Um, the threats that did that didn't happen. And the giant of Lannister thing, which is obviously causes everyone to laugh. And it's just, that's too much, you know, in order to win, Tyrion's already on, on the losing side of this trial and she did not fail regardless of what she was threatened with. I think some characters would have a little bit more dignity than to go all out, but she, she absolutely sells their, this, this idea of this tortured relationship with Tyrion, this terrible monster creature. And because she does it so well, um, you're forced to conclude that there cannot have been a real relationship between them because people don't do this to each other. What if she's being threatened, though? Yeah, what if she doesn't have a choice, you know? Again, Tyrion would die for her, or you're at least meant to believe. I mean, he's gone to such great lengths to protect her life, sending her away and, and the like. And, you know, whatever she's being threatened with, honestly, torture, death, you know, if it were love... If it were a real relationship, you'd think that she'd give it a second thought and, and maybe not be as detailed. I think, it, again, it's, it lies in the level of detail in her story that show, that I think would lead you to believe that she is not genuine. But then again, even Bronn left and Jamie is not fighting for Tyrion. So mm. you could also argue that maybe just the, th- the threat alone is too huge and too insurmountable that, that quite... Everybody who doesn't have to be Tyrion Lannister is not going to be anywhere near him. Yeah, um, this is the, you know, the top. This is the kingdom. Mm-hmm. This is the seat. These are the people that are ruling the Seven Kingdoms. This is a, uh, it's a lot to go against. It's funny that if Tyrion would have heeded his father's advice and never brought her to King's Landing, she wouldn't be able to be used against him in this way. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Not that he ever listens to his father. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. But it's you, you. You do question his actions, but you. There's a point where you have to realize that there's nothing he could have done differently. Because I, I think really what what shocks me is is the start of the chapter when he asks Podrick. When he asks Podrick, Pod, do you think I did it? And he hesitates, and he sort of bumbles an answer. And it's like, that holy hurt. shit! Even Podrick, like Sir Kevin's one thing. Mm-hmm. Even Podrick, his loyal squire, who has. Also, who's probably spent more time with him than Shay in this, you know, in in terms of 
around, out and about the city in his plannings, he would have overheard something. He would have certainly been privy to this plan, this plot, if it existed. Pod is not sure. Like the monster, like the trial, the, the testimony that's occurred has turned everybody, even Pod, against Tyrion or not not pro-Tyrion. And it's it's a real shame, but he is utterly and completely alone. Mm-hmm. We've heard from so many people who didn't really know him, and it's easier to brush that off. But from two of the people who you know are arguably closest, yeah, yeah. Right and Tyrion makes a an observation that this pretty girl is here on the court speaking of sexual deviance, mm. of things that he made her do, places that he made her do him. <laughs> it's just like it's it's graphic, and he's playing. She is playing to the weaknesses, and she, obviously she's being directed. Um, but you can't help but think that. You know, like like you said, Eric, it's just going really well. So no matter the reasoning, no matter if it's good or bad that she's doing all that aside, it's what she's doing in her confession and her description of the, their relationship and the things that he said and did. Um, like I said, no matter who is orchestrating this, uh, it's just so swift and complete. There's there's no way to question it. Another thing that just kind of came to mind is as we're all discussing this too is that I find it interesting that they would all be so willing to believe that this is how he treated her when he was so different in how he treated Sansa. You know, he he in no way forced himself upon her and was even mocked by his own family for not already having her with child in, mm. in some cases, yet here they are believing the story of, of, of Shay saying that he did things like say he was going to give her over to Shaga or Timmet uh, if she didn't pleasure him. So uh, you know, I just find that uh, all interesting that they would believe that this is the type of person that he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it, it's it, Tyrion draws the, what could be construed to be the right conclusion about all of this, which is that, as he says, he's on trial for being a dwarf. Like people believe this because he's different. People believe this because he he looks different. He is different. He's he's smarter and more capable. But they don't see that, and and that's that's where I think this sexual deviance thing plays in too. Because I think there's a line somewhere in the past that we've read about. Um, maybe it's between Varys and, and Tyrion, but you know, about the, the, the common folk and the sort of rumors going around about him just because he's an imp. And I think, I think it's very, it's, it's important to have that, that line and, and see how Tyrion, how strongly Tyrion, um, asserts that, that fact that it's, it's pretty much amounts to nothing more than, um, than, uh, fuck was it, than prejudice or this, this ingrained feeling like something's wrong with him because of you know what he is and and that's wrong and he points it out and i think it's very on the nose it's very uh important for him to do so yeah and, and this is of course after she finishes her entire bit and uh ends and this imagine such a swift block of judgment She's saying that they planned this all together, yeah. and she overheard some of it. And what she didn't overhear, he said plainly to her <laughs> as he was basically forcing her to sleep with him in the room with the dragon skulls. And we all know the real story. We all know what really happened. So it's just extra frustrating, like I said. This is like slint and 
Elizer Thorne were hanging out in the throne room talking about about Jon Snow all at the same time, except it's Tyrion standing trial and his death is what is at the end of this tunnel. Mm-hmm. And she's saying that he said all these horrible things like pawning her off to Shaga and to Timit, making her do unspeakable things, calling him my giant of Lannister. And yeah, this is where they all laugh because they're all able to unite, like you said, Eric, under this under this single prejudice that he's this imp. And he's this imp that, to most of these people, not to everyone in this room, but has a higher standing in their society. And this is a feudal society, and the blood, how they're born, matters more than anything. And it it de- denotes how you're treated. It's basically, you know, from the moment you're born to the to the end of your life, um, barring important things that happen, like shifts of power and warfare and, and death, for that matter, uh, how you're treated. And... It's enough to be jealous of those people. Someone like Jamie Lannister, who's perfect in almost everywhere, every way, and just so happens to be one of the best swordsmen ever. It doesn't hurt. But to be Tyrion Lannister, to be an imp, to be ugly, to be undesirable, yet to still demand that respect, just, I feel like, gets to these people, to these middling, powerful people that just quite can't quite join the family of Lannister. It gets to them. And I think it gets to them more than it gets to Tywin for having a son so disappointingly. Mm-hmm. So, of course... Everyone bellows in laughter and joins into this chorus of mocking him for possibly saying that he's the giant of Lannister, for making a woman say that to him. Of course, he had to pay her to say it or to think it because this guy is so miserable that he doesn't deserve anything on his own. And they love it and they celebrate it. And this is what pushes Tyrion to the edge. And we get this excellent monologue where he basically indoctrinates the entire throne room full of all of these jealous, horrible people and just saying, I saved you all. I saved this vile city and all of your worthless lives. There are hundreds in the throne room, every one of them laughing, but his father, or so it seemed, even the Red Viper chortled, and Mace Tyrell looked like to bust a gut. But Lord Tywin Lannister sat between them as if it made of stone, his fingers steepled beneath his chin. He's thinking, and then he eventually yells, my lords, Tyrion is shouting, and it all sort of goes out of hand, and he begins to give his confession. It's awesome, because we kind of finally Tyrion gets to say his bit what we've been wanting to say for the last couple chapters with him about him being on trial for being a dwarf and he finally gets to call everyone out and it's a it's a little satisfying amidst all this terrible stuff it it is a little satisfying but I I'm hung up on sort of the narrative of these events I mean Shay's testimony really tied this bow on this notion that that Tyrion and and Sansa planned this. We know that both of them actually were completely innocent. And it's just what what is the narrative then as far as the the kingdom is concerned because frankly there are people out there who did murder the king and they're going to get away completely free on this. I uh, you know by by Shay's testimony which is a complete lie and I don't know if it's you know fair to say oh being entered into the record but in general you know, so many people are no, going to be no longer looking for the killer of the king and just go back to safety because the Lannisters have created this lie so that Tyrion can be put to death or, you know, basically to get rid of Tyrion. And at, at what cost, really? I mean, Tywin surely must know or somebody surely must know that it was somebody else, but but they can't do anything about it. They're, they're going to spend the next few years hunting down Sansa uh, you know, for, again, a crime that wasn't committed. It was other people. There are other people who should be captured. It's quite the spectacle for chasing down the wrong person, which is, I think, what you're alluding to, Eric. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact that 
you're going to really upset the apple cart here between all of these families that have grown at least to be able to sit in a room with each other and not want to rip each other's uh, throats out or tear each other limb from limb, at least, you know, maybe that's going on a little bit underneath the surface with the Tyrells and the Martells and even the Lannisters, but yet they're still able to sit there, all three of them, and look to cast judgment upon Tyrion, but, you know, because there is such a strong push to try and convict him of doing something he did not do, not only do you have, as you mentioned, the real killer killers get away with it, you just have complete disarray and and a lot of falling action as a result of this. I mean, if we really got deep into it, uh, you know, not only does the Red Viper uh, lose this battle later on in the chapter, but of course uh, Tywin dies as a result of it. Shea dies as a result of it, all because uh, they accuse Tyrion of doing something that he did not do. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to believe that all of this was happening for. A reason and and then that that reason could be something as wonderful as Oberyn Martell getting what he's always wanted, right? Uh. That's that's really and I think that's I think that I'm not uh, I'm not unique in thinking that while reading this chapter because you know Tyrion leaving the trial and 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 meeting with with Oberyn too you 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 allow yourself to hope Tyrion allows himself to hope. And you allow yourself to hope, and the music starts playing, and you're just thinking, "Oh man, this is great. This is going to be good because this is one man's destiny." And seeing that scene when when Oberyn stands up and says that he's <laughs> Tyrion's champion, and just seeing the look on, it's it's right. a, it's amazing because mm-hmm. you're just like, "This is this was a judge who just presided over a trial that was uh-huh. completely one sided in com- the throne room. In the throne room, completely one sided, stands up and says, "I'll defend this man." Uh, this imp, this one who everybody there hates, and I bless him for asking so many follow-up questions on trial. I love that, um, but but bless him for nothing more than actually defending this this man. And but he's doing it to, to an end, obviously this end that that becomes him. But you want to believe for this brief period of time that Oberyn Martell is about to get everything he's always wanted, and that this this relationship, which is fairly new, fairly recent between these two men. Uh, ever since the Red Viper came to King's Landing, that it will pay off in this huge, satisfying way. And honestly, <laughs> I, I couldn't help but think, like, and and the maybe he'll set, survive this, right? The, well, maybe. the battles, yeah. What if what if he survives? Like, well, not. I didn't really think that was a possibility because we've seen the show. But but you you question what would the what would the Lannisters do if Oberyn had succeeded? If if he had overcome his pride at the very end and just you know <laughs> confirmed the kill. Mm-hmm. Um, as Ozzyman says, but but it's like, what state would would things even be in? I mean, you 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 really can't imagine. Oh, it sure be fun, wouldn't it? I mean, they'd all eat their words. Like Cersei, it, you you get kind of a preview of it in in Tyrion watching his sister during the fighting too. Is every time there's an advantage to one side, Cersei looks like she's gonna spit blood or has this this sour look on her face but that's that's exactly it is these people are having to live with the very real possibility that they were wrong for that brief amount of time and that's one of the things of course the level of detail and everything else that makes the battle part of this chapter completely exciting i found myself trying to look to see tywin's reaction while i was reading yeah after over he said he does my lord the dwarf has quite convinced me he stands champion like you said eric in the middle of this 
after after everything that has been said, after all the setup that we've done, and it's just like holy crap, this is this is what I'm talking about. Like talk about history being written in the moment. I know this is something we reference a lot in the show, but no matter what has happened with over and after the fact, this is going to be jotted down somewhere. This guy was bold enough to to do it in the way that he did in this chapter, and and I really felt as I was reading this like a person who didn't know the fate of what would happen at the end of this fight. And so much of this chapter was painted that it was incredibly unlikely that Oberyn could overtake the mountain, learning about what kind of person he was, that he was nearly eight feet tall, and he must weigh 30 stone, Mm -hmm. which is 420 pounds of muscle. Wow. Fights with a two-handed greatsword, which is six feet long. And he only has to use one one hand to to wield it. So we're talking uh, to those gamers out there. If you have a character that you've leveled up longer than you should, spent more time. This is how this man fights, <laughs> but, and he's very good. And he has expensive armor. But Prince Oberyn is unimpressed. He's unimpressed, and we think maybe mm, the fact that he's drinking before the fight is a notch against I him. Drink before the battle, right? And we have we take a, a cup of wine. I always drink before a battle. He's so casual about it. Yeah, nonchalant. And, we, and we're led to believe, well, maybe since George R. R. Martin, who <laughs> gives us this tension and leads us in the wrong direction a lot, is trying to make this feel like, okay, the the unlikely victory of Oberyn Martell might actually happen here. There's much conversation in this chapter, pages and pages between them before the battle takes place mm-hmm. of of what could happen. It's... So sad. It reminds me of walking back through the bottom of the Wampic Willow. And then <laughs> eventually, the transformation on the moon. I'm not going to make any more references like that, especially that's in this exactly episode. That's exactly what it is, though. And it feels that way. It's just this disappointing, this bright future that's ahead of us. Um, I could go on. Yeah, yeah. Oberyn's like, uh, Tyrion, uh, you could come stay with me instead of your aunt and uncle. <laughs> uh, just come, come to Doran and speak to Doran. There's lots to discuss. Queen Marcella, this Tom and new that. regime, that yeah, mm. You're well, right. yeah. And Tyrion goes on later, and he says it all goes back to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. And so there's all this could have, would have, maybe should have, but it's kind of been written that way since right? forever, you know. So it's not like it's almost like they didn't have a control. And their mothers were friends. Yep. Yep. Tyrion fucked it all up. That's what I took out of that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of wonder what, how things may have played out differently if if Joanna hadn't hadn't died. I know you do wonder, and that's maybe that's part of the history here. Maybe that's what has made this happen. Maybe it was all supposed to lead into this moment where maybe Tyrion and Oberyn become lifelong friends, and he defends Tyrion's honor and defeats this unlikely position where he could never. Never defeat the mountain, the strong, impenetrable force. Maybe it will happen now, right? Like maybe this is the the unlikely setup, and at the end of this chapter, we're going to be surprised that they'll prevail, and Tyrion's going to have some magnificent exit, and this is going to be the beginning of some kind of Dornish offense to the the terrible, nasty throne who's been disrespecting our Starks and our friends for three books now. Mm-hmm. He but he's died. already had that, though. He's he's already had his chance at. at trial by combat got out of a very precarious situation with one could argue a uh 
Underdog and Braun fighting for him. Yeah. So is that the lesson the then? Is that, that the lesson? Don't don't tempt fate twice. <laughs> don't don't demand trial by combat twice. Or you know, wh- or just have a really good escape plan if you plan to lose. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty finite in what happened. What would have happened at the Eerie, right? His ass would have been just tossed out of the moon door. Yeah, but yeah. he was. Yeah, here he's taken away to to face execution at some later point, as opposed to be killed right then and there. I, I think there was probably too much bloodshed in that moment to want to uh, have to kill another person in front of all of those people. Ugh. I just want to stress to everyone who's not reading along with us the relationship that we get to feel between Tyrion Oberyn and how much the buildup is between him standing as his champion publicly and him fighting for him as his champion publicly. These plans, like I said, these conversations that sort of lead us into a, a future that will never happen because one of them uh, dies at the end of this chapter, sadly. I mean, this is... I, when I was reading it for this episode, it just felt strange because we don't read ahead for the sake of the podcast. Mm. And you all know that we're incredibly huge fans of A Song of Ice and Fire. We've, we're almost 300 episodes in, so it's really strange for me being a reader and someone who's obsessed with storytelling uh, and stories that I like for that matter yeah. uh, to not have experienced this. But I finally got to experience it. This was finally, finally the chapter I was surprised last week because we truly don't look ahead and we truly try to capture these moments briefly in, you know, a podcast that you listen to. But I didn't I didn't see this coming. I didn't expect it that that Oberyn would turn to Tyrion and say, It is said that a Lannister always pays his debts. Perhaps you will return to Sunspear with me when the day's bloodletting is done. My brother Doran would be most pleased to meet the rightful heir to Casterly Rock. That's just um I don't know. It's almost too much when you didn't know it was coming because we've been prepared for a lot of things, Eric, but did that kind of take you off guard? Cause I know it did me. Yeah, it, it it really did. I mean, just this last burst of character too. I, I think this is my, this might be an old Hannah. You can back me up. This might be a trick of, of uh, a narrative thing they did on lost. Um, but it's like, as soon as a, a peripheral character gets there, uh, uh, flashback episode they die mm-hmm. it's like now you know a little bit more about this character okay time to kill them <laughs> it's just like uh this ridiculous this backstory of elia and 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 uh over in here of finding a suitor for her and their mother's plans which which we mentioned too but you know, <laughs> Oberyn's tendency to to try and name her suitors and dissuade her and bail her break wind and all of oh, this other stuff. That was rough, huh? That's going on. You're just like, this is the best story ever. If he and didn't fart, it would all be Poor Baylor Hightower. T- Tyrion, Tyrion wondered how many lives had been snuffed out by that fart. Um, it's just like, you, you want more of it. And I, I think it's because the curtain is being peeled back and we're getting sort of a final... This is uh, Oberyn writing his own eulogy, basically, like, this is the kind of man I am. Um, I really went too hard on him. Uh, but it, it's it's sort of, in his own words, you, you see all the good things about Oberyn, and then when he fights, you continue to see good things about him until you realize his pride has overcome him, and then he dies. But it's like, it this, this whole chapter is sort of a love story to Oberyn, or I read it as such, anyway. Um, regardless of what the the author's intention are, because this is a character who does overcome, uh, or nearly overcome, 
such great odds and and we like those sorts of characters they're heroes do you wonder though with oberin was he going to look for this battle regardless of Tyrion's trial i think it gives him the perfect opportunity to be able to try and avenge what happened to his sister and his niece and his nephew all those years ago uh and and i really think that there's a part of him that does believe in Tyrion's innocence but more so, this is about his family. This is about his justice for his sister. Mm. And we see that throughout the course of the battle. It it, it almost drives him a bit crazy. It blinds him to what it, yeah. what he his mission is here, and that is to kill the mountain. And mm-hmm. he, he really wants the confession more than anything else. He wants to hear the word spoken to almost justify what it is that, that he's doing here. And he he gets it, but it's unfortunately at a moment that is result that results in 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 his death. So he got what he wanted to hear, but I feel like he should have just went for the kill, <laughs> right? <laughs> Taking care of it. It's so perfect because this is more than just offsetting Tywin Lannister. It's 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 poetic in the way that Tywin disgraced the agreement after Joanna passed away and said, my daughter Cersei will marry Prince Rhaegar. Mm. We're not joining your family. And it turned out to be their daughter, Elia, who married Prince Rhaegar. And it was like, oh, there's the one up on the Lannisters that we were (laughs) able to get. And then, like Oberyn says in this chapter, Tywin Lannister had his say and the deliverance of the dead bodies by the hands of his men when the kingdom was being sacked during Robert's Rebellion. So it's like the reigns not really all over again, but in their own way, like this is the payback for disrupting not only my situation, but even being nearby something else that would be advantageous for me. So how better to come back in grand fashion than to, well, almost poetically defend someone that you're trying to have murdered, even though it is your son. It's almost like a favor to Tywin, but not quite because he doesn't care about Tyrion, but to take care of the person guilty of doing the murder and to also disrupt what you're trying to do in front of gods and men. And what is the entire kingdom? Basically the entire capital lined up for this fight. It's just to Oberyn too good. And that is why he is being such a showman as this fight begins, this is the stage. This is the moment. It's one of the most energetic things to happen. One of the most cinematic things to happen so far in the entire book series. It's a big deal. It is. I mean, there's there's one line, and then there's the action that accompanies that line, and then there's another line, and the action that accompanies it because you're because this is happening so quickly. But you're also treated to just the skill level that these that this guy possesses. The, the way that he fights, like I think it was, of course, adapted extremely well, and it's wonderful to watch the first part of this <laughs> uh, trial um, battle on the, uh, you know, on on TV. But even reading into the book too, you you really get this the sense of this great drama and how quickly he's moving and everybody's reactions, as I mentioned before, too, listed like it is really cinematically written, but it's 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 so great in this book. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. Then your adrenaline starts pumping, you know, because you think he's going to do it and he's maybe going to beat him and it gets excited. And even Tyrion, he starts saying, I'm feeling more innocent by the instant. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to do it. He's going to do it. You know, it's exciting. Yeah. When it looks like he's going to win. But at at the beginning, you know, when it's clear 
when when Oberyn's lines are, are first shouted out to, you raped her, you murdered her, you killed her children, Alaria remarks, uh, Oberyn is toying with him, and, and Tyrion has this inner monologue, that's fool's play, and he actually says, the mountain is too bloody big to be any man's toy. And that's true! Like, it, it's the boldness, the brashness of, of Oberyn, and I, I like that Mike and Zach, you both talked about how this is just a really good opportunity for Oberyn, and it, it's true, it is. I mean, Oberyn... the best. The mountain yeah. wasn't even in town until two nights ago, and he came in at Cersei's request for this reason. Like, this is the nicest, cleanest way that Oberyn would ever get the opportunity to to battle this man, but again, he, he is taking for granted um, the the gravity of the situation, I think. Um, in this and for its for his own personal gain and that ultimately is his failing from the book it looked as though a thousand people had come to see if he would live or die they lined the castle wall walks and elbowed one another on the steps of keeps and towers Mm -hmm. they watched from the stable doors from windows and bridges from balconies and roofs and the yards was packed with them so many that the gold cloaks and the knights of the king's guard had to shove them back to make enough room for the fight. Some had dragged out chairs to watch more comfortably, while others <laughs> perched on barrels. Long chairs. <laughs> I was going to it was fold out like game day chairs, mm-hmm. like tailgating chairs. People are like exactly. selling water bottles for a dollar. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tyrion thinks we could have charged a penny ahead and paid for Joffrey's wedding and funeral yeah. both. Uh, some of the onlookers even had small children sitting on their shoulders, dunk an egg to get a better view. There you go. They shouted and pointed at the sight of Tyrion. And this is Oberyn's stage. The first thing he said when he walks out, the fight's about to begin. He just walks right in. He goes, have they told you who I am? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Batman. He goes, some dead man. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. What a beginning. This is the chapter. And it was exciting reading it. Like you said, Hannah, just adrenaline, just pumping. And, you know, one slash here, one step back here. And still up to this point after the buildup, it could go both ways. We could be disappointed. We could be gratified. You don't really know the direction that's going to be taken. And the fight goes on for a few pages. And it's dangerous. And we're seeing Oberyn eventually go further and further into his repeating of, you raped her, you killed her, you murdered your children. Elia, say her name. Yeah, and just all of the attacks you see him swing and not swing but you see him poke and miss quite a lot you know off the breastplate but but he's jabbing at the mountain as if it were a game and he's doing it until he gets it right and he gets it right but it's just all of the these attempts and he's just out of reach for the mountain whose reach is crazy long <laughs> crazy far and the mountain who who brings this great sword uh is is useless at first you know against against this guy who's not even wearing proper armor or in certainly no cover over his head. It's, it's pretty, it's preposterous how long the battle goes on considering how outnumbered they would look on paper or sorry, how uneven this battle would look on paper. Oberyn is able to counterbalance the strength of the mountain with his intellect. And I, and I do think that the, the chance of you raped her, you murdered her, begin to wear on the mind of the mountain and and Mm -hmm. it it frustrates him at, at one point he just, or multiple times he tells him to shut up Uh, because I I think it, it's messing with his concentration with his focus and uh, it allows Oberyn eventually to land a couple of good shots that we think are in, you know, totality going to end up being the, the mountains undoing and, and, 
of course, we know what happens. But uh, I I think that Oberyn played his cards exactly right. If he had managed a confession, it would have ended and Tyrion would have been freed. But uh, I just... Uh, I, I disagree with with what Tyrion said, and you know the mountain not being a toy. I mean, certainly one you want to make sure you like read all the stuff in the package. About <laughs> oh my be- god! Beforehand, but <laughs> some assembly required. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I, I think he went in knowing exactly what his plan was going to be, and I think he executed it flawlessly, with the exception of the the end. The fight becomes so close. Oberyn is making so many calculated jabs and he's saying so many things that are just insanely pissing off the mountain shut up shut up that the 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 onlookers are overpowering the king's guard they're overpowering the gold cloaks they're moving in because this is so interesting they can't help but to get further further in they're inching to get a better view hundreds of gawkers and only six men in white armor meanwhile over and is fighting the mountain this is the fight of the century you raped her you murdered her you killed her children he pisses off the mountain so much he's taking his sword he's like shut up he swings his sword over and ducks and he cuts off a stable boy's arm in the crowd. They're this close. And the boy is screaming and he says, shut up again. He yells it again. And what does he do? He, he swings his blade sideways, sends the top half of the kid's head across the yard in a spray of blood and brains. So the people in the crowd are getting more than they bargained for. He should have been disqualified for that, by the way. <laughs> right? At some point. It's, it illustrates just what a force to be reckoned with it is. And it's like, it's, it's funny because, too, he's just like, I can't hit this target. I'll hit any target, you know. And it's just, it's it's the brutal animalist. I think Tyrion uh, mentions once, too, he's grunting. He's not, he's, yeah. not, he's not speaking. He's grunting. This is what he does when he when he battles. And it's it's very brutish and very animalistic. And it's terrifying, actually. That's that's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole point is the sheer size and how well uh, every, all the details of his armor, of what he's wearing, and how well fortified this man is. You, you, you are meant to believe that the odds are very much against Tyrion, and it's, well, it's literary, tr- it's, it's genius, but it's trickery to think that we could ever be so hopeful uh, towards the end of the battle that, that it will actually turn out where Oberyn will, will stay on top. So soft-footed Oberyn is dodging the blows. The crowd is in chaos now because someone else has been killed. They're just trying to get away from what's happening. He's still yelling at her, almost drunkenly. Maybe he's got a little bit of a wine spirit inside of him, but we know his true motivation. And it's truly gotten to the mountain. And this is when things get super interesting. And he's yelling Elia in this epic fashion. That's literally too ridiculous for us to talk about in the correct spirit of this podcast. It's a, it's a little late. And between us, we're just trying to talk about this thing that we shared in after reading this chapter. And normally, it's, it's, it's not a difficult thing to do. But how do you properly have a conversation about Ober Martell fighting for his life against the mountain, who's going crazy and is going to end up doing to him what he does to him? I don't even know how to do this properly. Not not much else to say. I mean, Ober, I, I compare it to the mountain trying to get up after he's finally knocked down. He can't get up. You know, he's it's 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 like us trying to describe the feelings that are running through us when we're hearing Ober and shout her name over and over and over again. And if you thought it was a lot in the show, it's 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 a lot in the book too. And 
Eliav Dornan. Eliav, as he's running, and it's just he's he's mad with passion, with uh, with feelings here as rage. he's doing this with rage. You can read this a hundred times and still think that he's going to do it. Like I just keep, yeah. I just keep going back to that point because you know I I just. You can read this You're just again. hoping that it's going to yeah. be different. <laughs> you know, every time I read this, I just think that maybe this time it's going to be different. Say uh, the name. It's just so well written. Well, the mountain does confess at the end. And so we at least get... Thanks, Micah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Micah with the silver line. I don't know how much of a comfort it is to anybody. Certainly not Oberyn. Uh, but I, I think that... Uh, and interested for your feedback here as well, that the show... Uh, did a, a little bit more of a gruesome take on what happens to Oberyn than what happens in the book. I mean, I know there is the teeth getting knocked out, but mm. the, maybe maybe it's just the way that, that I read it. I didn't think it was as bad, but certainly visualizing anything that the mountain did to Oberyn is pretty intense. Well, I mean, it says he pushes steel fingers into his eyes. That's I, I think what it is is in the book, there's a killing blow, like a, a ball, balled up fist, that smashes into his head, which presumably kills him. But the pushing steel fingers into his eyes was, I think, uh, generously or liberally adapted uh, into what ended up being the the killing in the in the show. But it's it's almost more terrifying. What do you think, Hannah? I think that having both images in my head at the same time is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'll read I'll read the snippet, and you listening decide. This is after Oberyn's Elia. Tell your father I'm here. <laughs> Stabs him with a spear to the ground. He's pinned on his back. He actually picks up the mountain's great sword. He has yeah. a sword. He could stab it through his eye hole like we were all thinking in the show. Just poke him right in the face and kill his brain parts. And maybe he won't be alive any longer. Tyrion's thinking this. We're all thinking it. But Oberyn wants to hear the confession. All right, He's gotten this far. He wants to hear him say it. He gets nearby. And then the mountain grabs him behind the knee, pulls him on top of him, and squeezes him to his chest like a lover's embrace. Elia of Dorne, they all heard Sir Gregor say, when they were close enough to kiss, his deep voice boomed within the helm. I killed her, screaming, whelp. He thrust his free hand into Oberon's unprotected face, pushing steel fingers into his eyes. Then I raped her. Clegane slammed his fist into the Dornishman's mouth, making splinters of his teeth. Then I smashed her fucking head in like this. I think that the fact he was able to punch his head into oblivion was arguably leagues more brutal than smashing it against the stone ground. Am I wrong in this, guys? It's almost like would you would you rather have your eyes punched in or your teeth punched no, in? No, I wouldn't. No, don't even <laughs> nothing. Well, any way you cut it, I think it's painful. And it's sad that we lose a character who we've all grown to love. And even in this chapter with his interactions with Tyrion, and we've seen, you know, just uh, an unbelievable job by Pedro Pascal. We talked about that at length uh, during that season. But this goes back to what Hannah said last chapter, the frustration. You think Tyrion is so close uh, to being freed. You think Oberyn is so close to redemption. And then it's snatched away. Uh, thanks, George. We really appreciate that. Love you. Good job. No, I'm depressed. Tyrion says, he never heard his father speak the words that condemned him. Perhaps no words were necessary. I put my life in the red viper's hands and he dropped it. 
when he remembered too late that snakes had no hands, Tyrion began to laugh hysterically. <laughs> just, it obviously came upon him quite quick, and it causes him to lose his breakfast, um, which is the very first of many consequences to the death of... Actually, it's the second, because uh, Ilaria screams. So thanks for that, George R. R. Martin. I've now lost over in Martell twice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It happened in the book first, though, if it makes you feel any better. Mm-hmm. Neither of it makes me feel... <laughs> none of it makes me feel good. I can't feel a thing. I can't, I can't feel anything anymore. It's nice to spread it out a little bit, because when you read it through all the way, and you're reading so fast, you lose you lose all these people within, you know, space of two hours. Well, what was it like, you know, reading it and... What was... It? I suppose I sort of we sort of know what it was like watching the show. But yeah. What was it like getting the hope of the, their future, which is completely devoid from the show, and this way, and and seeing it in this way? Like, how did you guys feel? It just happened so fast. I mean, I was flying through these last chapters. You know, reading for plot alone, it's been nice to kind of go back and dig a little deeper because there's so much that I missed just because yeah. I was so excited and anxious to get to the next plot point. I would agree with that. I I think in reading through the first time you you believe that he's going to kill the mountain and much like watching the show you think whole you know you you're you're ready to like scream out burst in, into cheers right mm-hmm. and so and close. it's just snatched away from you and it just it's it's the way that these these books uh, are written and we should know better i feel like especially after everything that's happened in this book i mean let's not forget the red wedding you know still <laughs> happened in this book not that, yeah. long, not that ago. long ago, Joffrey, yeah. uh, and what happened to him, um, you know, Oberyn, right? And then we still have a few more left. So This is in mm-hmm. three of seven, by the way, of all the books. For people mm-hmm. who, I don't know if everybody reads along when they listen, but definitely it's worth it. I mean, you think you know what's going to happen, and you just get so much deeper into, you get so caught up in it still, the story that you already know so many answers to. and so. It's worth it to go back and back and back. That's one of the reasons I love analyzing it like we do on this podcast because, I don't know, it's just aggrandizes the experience. And I, I love the fact that we get to do it while there are still books to be released, while the, while the story is still fresh and alive in a way. Even though this book has been published for some time and it's been adapted even, uh, there's still magic and mystery surrounding the overall story. And it's fun to do it now instead of later on, as it will be done for decades to come, I'm sure. Well, I don't think there's any discussion as to who owned who in this chapter. Too soon? Too soon? Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, since since for, for once, we could switch up the order because this just happened and it was too much. Oh, man. The mountain, he ruined uh, what could have been. Or <laughs> he just ruined it. Thanks. Future killer. I'm going to give my own to Shay, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, really. I think uh, she uh, was the final nail in Oberyn's coffin. Oberyn or Tyrion? Well, Tyrion's still alive. Mm, Yeah. She's responsible in part for Oberyn's death uh, because of how she chose to uh, testify against Tyrion and ultimately cause him to spin out of control and give his speech and declare trial by combat and... We all know what happened after that, but I, I just think the way that uh, Shay describes everything, and we discussed it about Tyrion in this chapter, and how 
uh, he plotted with Sansa. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Too much. But uh, she definitely completely, utterly owned him. There's Destroyed. no question. Owned Oberyn for having the fortitude to stand up, uh, first of all, to announce in front of everybody once Tyrion's been condemned that he will be the champion. And furthermore, even though you sucked the last 10 seconds of your life, um, this was amazing. An amazing show of uh, morality, or that's nah, not the right word, of, of boldness and uh, justice. An amazing... It's amazing to demand justice for the ones you love. That's all I'll say. And so, and so, Oberyn, um, you know, actively seeking that out and and finding the man that he needs to to do it for him from. It's it's perfect. So Oberyn, Oberyn does get my own. Oberyn Martell. Mm-hmm. Can we give our own to George R. R. Martin? Yes, I think it's only proper. All right, I'm just gonna do it. I'm going to give my own to George R. R. Martin because I think he deserves a little shout out just for the way this chapter is written. Many. As we've been saying, it's very thematic and exciting and I just really like it. I don't, I don't know. That's fair. <laughs> That's all I got to say. I just like it. My own for the John chapter goes to Owen for dreaming <laughs> of kings. Oh. Baratheon kings. Not the right one, but. He's kind of close. I was hopeful, Micah. I thought for a moment, where's this chapter going? <laughs> Could it be? It's really no. different from the show. It's just Jenna's. That bastard. <laughs> I'm, uh, mine's pretty simple and casually avoids the uh, potential error of uh, giving the own to the point of view character. But uh, I'm going to give my own to the barrels for smashing the turtle. Boulder barrels. Not bad. Love it. Serious ingenuity on behalf of Jon Snow, right? Extremely. Scattered rocks versus a block of devastating weight. Not too bad. I'm going to give my own to, once again, the point of view chap character. Oh, damn that's it. That's how I roll. Roll hard. Gonna, I try so hard. I'm doing it on purpose at this point. <laughs> For John at the end, when he grabs Thorn, John yanked away and grabbed the knight by the throat with such ferocity <laughs> that he lifted him off the floor. <laughs> want to bring it back to that great John Snow moment. <laughs> Hulk John. Yes. I'll give my own to Pip and the rest of the fellows. Exacting humor, such bravery in the face of all of that. They're getting arrows shot at their faces. And what better way to keep morale up than to tell jokes and to, to laugh at the things that are happening around you. I think that that's a severely sharp coping mechanism that George R. R. Martin wrote into the chapter. So I guess it's kind of a hybrid to him yep. for writing such poignant things. But what else... Have we come to expect from our storyteller who has led us this far into the third book, guys? Mm. It's like we just gave our owns for over in Martell fighting the mountain. It's like moving along swiftly and steadily. Yeah, a- absolutely. This book has been everything that people say it, w- it would be. All right. Well, uh, let's see uh, what owns our listeners came up with. Yeah, follow that up. Hmm. Over on Twitter, we heard from. Blue Winter Rose, who says, Tyrion, pretty sure the Faith of the Seven owned the Mountain, the Viper, and Tyrion this round. Hashtag ouch. The Brienne of Tarth on Twitter. John Owen goes to Pip. Aha, for having a sense of humor in the face of almost death. Thank you. And I'm giving a gold star owned to Oberyn. Hashtag you tried. (laughs) Hannah, I think... It's only proper you take the next one. Okay. Hermione Weasley at the Grey Lady on Twitter says, My first ever owns. Exciting. 
to Pip for naming the Scarecrow and Baylor Hightower for the fart that changed the course of Westeros. <laughs> it's like the it butterfly effect. Huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, two parts rye on Twitter. Own to Mance for turtling in the winter, and he doesn't care who knows it. <laughs> He's the lady in Ash. the tent, My own goes to the Viper. He may have lost his life, but he fought for those he loved. Even after 16 years. Hashtag always. <laughs> I love our listeners. Hodgedog on Twitter. To Pip for being overly positive. And on Tyrion's chapter to the mountain, the Viper had the own but dropped it because he has no hands. Oh, <laughs> too bad. No, you know who has one fewer hand? The stable boy. He does. Well, he has one fewer head. But oh, it, yeah, that yes. too. Over on Facebook, we have Christina Klein who says... Whenever I read of dead bodies not being burned, I shudder. Apologies mm. to Eric. My own is for John. Shout out. To <laughs> Slint. I don't know what your skull is stuffed with, my lord. Also note, John says, my lord. Slint says, my lord. And also, isn't Slint an oathbreaker for not giving up his claim on Hall when he took his vows to Night's Watch? Mm-hmm. And oh, Overin, for his question to Shay during the trial, what sorts of things? And for a glimpse at things that might have been for Tyrion if it, this had gone his way. That makes me feel better. Also on Facebook, Reese Palazzolo, my own for the John chapter, goes to Janice Slint for being such an arrogant... <laughs> says Deuce. Uh, being such an arrogant douche that I actually wanted to reach inside the book and just punch <laughs> him square in the face. He's like Umbridge. He is like mm-hmm. Umbridge. And Almost. for Tyrion, the prince, Oberyn Martell, the Red Viper of Dorne, owns absolutely everything about this chapter, except the dying part, of course, <laughs> for being so cocksure and for his awesome one-liners, like when Alaria comments about the mountain, you're going to fight that? I'm going to kill that. Mm, I'm going to kill that. <laughs> I'm going to kill him. With my own hands. Luis Bontalvo says, own for John chapter. <laughs> to John for doing the best Captain Obvious impression. Oh, no, John O'Slint does not allow lies so easily. Did you think my skull was stuffed with cabbage? To which John replies, I don't know what your skull is stuffed with, my lord. <laughs> People really seem to like that one. Mm-hmm. They do. And uh, to Tyrion goes to Cersei for being, well, so Cersei. After demanding a trial by combat, Tyrion states the following. His sweet sister could not have been more pleased. He has that right, my lords. She reminded the judges, let the gods judge. Sir Gregor Clegane will stand for Joffrey. And he did. Mm-hmm. And those were his first owns ever, so thank you, Louise. Thank you, Louise. Or, or Louis, however you want to pronounce it. Louis and, and Hermione Weasley at Grey Lady. Thank you for... We love getting first owns. Thank you, everyone who participates and sent <laughs> sent your owns in. If you phoned your own in, uh, please let us know. It must have went astray. Eric handles our our phone answering machine, yes. uh, and it's turned into a debacle recently. We apologize. Tweet at us at Game of Owns. Scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook dot com slash Game of Owns, or send us an email at contact at Game of Owns dot com. Next week, guess what? What we will uh, be reading the very special edition Hodor and Loris chapters. Not sure wow. if you guys have heard about this before, but uh, those two will be on our 300th episode of the podcast live from New York City in Times Square. I hope uh, those of you who are in the area can join us. 
who are going to be here for Comic-Con, who live in the area and listen to the show. Uh, we really are looking forward to seeing all of you out at the Hard Rock Cafe. It's literally going to be too much to talk about right now. So if you'd like to go, details, tickets, at gameofowns.com slash tickets. And if you're not going to be there, there's going to be an episode, your 300th episode. And if you want to catch all the stuff that happens behind the scenes, it'll be up shortly at patreon.com slash goo. That is the way you who listen to this podcast, who love and admire every damn minute of it, can support the podcast. Just support the show that you love at that URL. Enjoy. Hmm. Should we tell people to get on that Snapchat before we are all together in New York? <laughs> well, let that be a warning. <laughs> For those of you who are interested in that particular tier of patreon head on over there it is the kingsguard snapchat tier snapchat tier <laughs> you have to say it that fast or it doesn't count nope when signing up okay. it disappears after 24 hours after 24 hours or three or four or five seconds it's up for debate please join us you know another way that you can support the show yet too is on itunes by rating the show and leaving a review over on the itunes store uh, iTunes, of course, you know what iTunes is. It is, is the month of October, so nothing less than five stars is acceptable. Nothing less than five stars. And in fact, if you can rig the system to somehow give us 300 stars uh, for 300 episodes, do it. And I feel like it's become a, a bit of a joke, a running joke, I should say, at this point. But we will read some of those reviews on a future episode. <laughs> is that a threat? We, we promise. <laughs> Please, please, uh, please do that. Your show, wear costumes to the event on Friday. Uh, approach us with arms outstretched. Uh, we will hug all of you back and beer and yeah, all of that as well. Extra, extra goodness for Game Owns listeners who bring their own T-shirts. Please draw a likeness of your favorite host Eric on it, and we will, we will also congratulate you with that. Hannah will be doing the same. I will be. Don't promise me you're going to wear a shirt, Hannah. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> what if I show up wearing that shirt? What are you going to do? <laughs> I, will, I will die a happy man. We literally don't know uh, what's going to happen. Thank you for being with us for this long. The next is our 300th. Join us, Join us. in New York. <laughs>